Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, thanks for joining us for New Books in Philosophy. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, and Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. My guest today is A. John Simmons. He's the author of a fantastic new book titled Boundaries of Authority, which is published by Oxford University Press. As I suspect many listeners will know, John has been working on normative questions about state authority for quite some time. This latest book explores normative issues regarding the moral rights of states with respect to territory. Now, there are several questions here, uh, questions about borders, immigration and exclusion, natural resources in, under, and above the ground, and so on. Uh, And many of these are taken up uh, by John in the book. But before we get into the details of Boundaries of Authority, let's greet our guest. Hi, John. Good morning, Bob. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. Well, thanks for joining us on New Books in Philosophy. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to to talk a bit about the book. Uh, These issues are important ones, I think, and I hope that people will be stimulated to do their own work on the problems. Great. Um, before we get into the, the, the problems and the, and, and the way that you address them in the book, um, why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit, a little bit about yourself? Right. Uh, well, I was born in the United States and have lived here uh, my whole life, with the exception of a few uh, semesters spent abroad. Um, I was born in New Jersey specifically and lived uh, all up and down the East Coast. Um, My philosophical interests developed perhaps somewhat later in life than is true for many of us. Uh, I had no interest in philosophy in high school or and I entered uh, college as an engineer um, taking almost exclusively math and science classes though it gradually dawned on me that my favorite classes were the electives that were outside of the engineering curriculum. Um, My interest in philosophy began when I took an undergraduate class at Princeton from uh, Tim Scanlon. I think the class was called Systematic Ethics. And while I uh, did many other things during my undergraduate years, I was hooked on philosophy um, and ended up pursuing that as a major. Uh, It was a terrific time to do philosophy at Princeton. Um, I had the opportunity to take classes with Hempel and Vlastos, uh, with uh, Donald Davidson, uh, with uh, Stuart Hampshire, uh, Walter Kaufman, Dick Rorty. Uh, I worked a lot with Tim Scanlon while I was there. My undergraduate thesis, which all Princeton undergraduates have to write, was directed by Tom Nagel. Um, So 
I got some really excellent philosophical training uh, that uh, decided me to uh, try my hand at graduate school. Um, I went to graduate school at Cornell, uh, where I worked primarily with Nick Sturgeon and David Lyons. David Lyons supervised uh, my dissertation there, which after a couple of years of work became uh, my first book on political obligation. Uh, I was offered a job out of graduate school at the University of Virginia, uh, which I took, and I have been there ever since for more than uh, 40 years. I've been perhaps tempted to leave a few times by uh, offers that I've received elsewhere, but uh, the University of Virginia is a very fine university. I enjoy the students there, and I love Charlottesville. Uh, so I've uh, I've remained, and here I am now. That's great. Um, interesting, uh, maybe philosophically, that you've um, stayed put, uh, um, uh, that you've taken up residence within a particular location and um, uh, haven't moved. Um, that um, does that seem like a philosophical? <laughs> it, it might. It might well be. <laughs> Uh, you have some allegiance to uh, to a particular, dare I say, state. Um, so, great. Well, let's uh, let's move on to the book. Um, um, the book begins uh, with a chapter that um, discusses what you call some necessary preliminaries, um, and you're centrally concerned to introduce their um, the broader uh, themes and issues um, concerning political authority. Um, particularly with respect to um, authority uh, over persons or individuals. Um, I guess that some of this uh, that I'm about to ask you to to run us through will be familiar to some readers, but I I still think it would be good to to hear you lay it out. Um, uh, Can you you begin us off with just uh, some of the general uh, preliminary uh, issues um, about authority? Right. Well, the subject of the book, as you've said, is political authority and the relationship between uh, state or governmental claims to authority over a particular set of persons and the claims that states or governments make to authority over particular territories. Uh, Political authority in this sense, in the great early uh, modern treatises in political philosophy was usually contrasted with uh, divine authority, the authority of God over God's creatures um, and over God's creations, over the earth and uh, over persons and lower animals. Um, And it was contrasted as well, typically with uh, paternal or parental authority, the authority of parents over their children. Uh, Political authority, um, I understand in the way that I suppose it's understood by most contemporary political philosophers, political authority understood this way is a moral right of a state or a government to rule over persons and territory, or perhaps uh, uh, more accurately to exercise jurisdiction over persons and territories. Uh, That way of thinking of political authority contrasts with a way that might be familiar to readers from uh, 
the discussions of political authority that you'll find uh, in some works in political science where authority is taken to be uh, an empirical property rather than a moral property of regimes. Um, In this case, authority is thought to be um, to consist in or to be measured by uh, the levels of popular support that particular regimes manage to acquire. Um, There is no real discussion of that way of thinking of authority in the book. That is, I don't discuss how it is that particular kinds of leaders or particular kinds of governments uh, manage to attract popular support. Um, I'm interested in the normative dimension of, uh, of politics. Um, this way of thinking about authority also contrasts, I suppose, with a, um, a kind of authority with which philosophers often uh, contrast it uh, with the kind of authority that is claimed or possessed by experts within a particular domain, what's sometimes called epistemic authority. Um, the claims of authorities of that sort um, provide us with reasons to believe what they say. Uh, The claims of practical authorities uh, seem rather different. Um, Practical authorities, and we might uh, use in addition, as examples, in addition to political authority, the authority that parents are thought to have over their children, or perhaps that employers are thought to have over their employees. The claims of practical authorities give us distinctive sorts of reasons to act rather than reasons to believe what they say. While we might hope that our practical authorities were experts in some domain, their authority does not consist in or is not necessarily tied to such expertise. Um, In the case of practical authority, um, what we have is distinctive sorts of reasons to act. Uh, And typically, in the case of practical authority, Uh, these reasons uh, amount to moral obligations. So in the case of practical political authority, uh, authority is thought to consist in the right of authorities to rule and the correlative moral obligation on the part of subjects to comply with uh, the commands or the uh, legal uh, requirements set by those authorities and to support the political authorities in other ways beyond simple obedience. Now, as I've said, the the book concerns the interrelation between arguments concerning political authority over persons and political authority over territories. Territories obviously can't have moral obligations to act. We might say that political authority of persons consists in the right of the authority to specify the duties of those persons. Uh, That can't be the nature of political authority over territories. Typically, uh, political authority over territories is understood to be the moral right to control how people will act with respect to those territories, with respect to the land and resources that the land contains or consists in. Um, And so the... Uh, Political authority over territories will, for instance, give the state the right to impose a certain uh, legal property regime to establish certain kinds of control over the borders of the territory and so on. 
the standard approaches to the justification of political authority over sets of persons um, almost always are taken to imply uh, justifications for states' control over territor territories, over land and resources, specifically the land and resources that are lived on and used by uh, the people over whom the state has authority. The nature of the implication here from the implication of arguments uh, for political authority over persons to arguments for political authority over territories differs from theory to theory, but all the major uh, theories seem to think there is one. Um, as a longstanding skeptic about political authority uh, of existing states over persons, I am predictably, I suppose, in the book, skeptical about, uh, as well about political authority over uh, territories, though I do in the book defend one account um, that I think gives plausible explanations for how both uh, political authority over persons and political authority over territories could be justified. This is, again, predictably, I suppose, a Lockean account. Um, the account, of course, doesn't end up justifying the claims of actual states over actual sets of persons or actual territories that they claim, uh, but it provides, I claim, a plausible ideal uh, towards which we can try to move in practical political affairs. So the, the body of the book, uh, it's probably fair to say, uh, consists in contrasting that kind of Lockean approach to questions about political authority over persons and territories with what I take to be the dominant strain of thought in contemporary political philosophy, which is broadly Kantian or Rawlsian. Excellent. Um, maybe if there's time later, I, 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 there might not be. I, I would like to ask the the methodological question um, that you, you just uh, prompted um, about um, the uh, the ideal nature of the theorizing uh, right. in the book, um, but let's let's see if we uh, if we if we can get there. Um, uh, that's you know th that's something that gets discussed throughout the book. Um, I take it though it's not a major theme, um, although um, uh, again I take it that some of our listeners will um, be aware of of one of your influential essays on uh, the ideal non ideal distinction. Um, so maybe we'll get we'll get back to that. Let's let, let's though take up. Um, um, sort of where the book begins after the preliminaries, which is um, uh, with a with an argument that's early on your agenda um, uh, that a state's claim to have authority over its citizens can be negatively impacted or diminished or um, maybe defeated uh, by um, historical wrongdoings by the state. Um, that is that it looks as if one of the, the, the first things that you're interested in on your way towards um, addressing these, these questions about borders is also to look at um, how the past can affect present um, authority relations. Um, and here you offer um, a, a, a very compelling, I thought, analysis of Thoreau and civil disobedience. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you find intriguing about Thoreau's line on this? Sure. Um, well, as anyone who's ever read Thoreau knows, Thoreau was not a systematic philosopher. Um, and I confess my acquaintance with Thoreau is uh, uh, relatively recent. Uh, I, uh, I remembered enough of Thoreau 
uh, though, to think that I might find in Thoreau uh, a position that contrasts with uh, the Rawlsian approach to civil disobedience. Rawls' writings on civil disobedience are what we all discuss when we teach civil disobedience, at least it's certainly what I discuss. Um, Thoreau is generally read, I think, as being pretty moderate, his arguments as being broadly in line with Rawlsian arguments. Uh, the standard reading of Thoreau, I think, has him saying something like that it's permissible to quietly or civilly disobey laws that are unjust uh, or to disobey the law where legal obedience would support unjust policies. So Thoreau's tax resistance, for instance, is permissible provided that it's uh, civil. So this sounds not too unlike Rawls. Um, there is a slightly more radical reading of Rousseau that is abroad in the uh, of Thoreau, sorry, that is abroad in the literature on Thoreau that uh, the United States in Thoreau's day had delegitimated itself by uh, engaging in massively unjust policies regarding the institution of human slavery, regarding the aggressive war against Mexico, and regarding the treatment of Native American peoples. Uh, when one reads Thoreau carefully, one finds Thoreau saying things that are rather stronger than this and more radical. Um, one kind of thing that he says is that political authority depends on the consent of the governed and that, that consent is absent in the case of Thoreau and maybe absent in the case of many others. Um, and the other radical thing that he seems to say is that the very idea of political authority seems to conflict with our obligation to, as Bob Wolf puts it a hundred years later, uh, to uh, exercise our autonomy, that is to act in whatever way we think is best in the circumstances. What these more radical views suggest is that state illegitimacy is not just about the, in, the justice or injustice of state policies or the institutional structure of states. It suggests a more radical picture of Thoreau as a kind of philosophical anarchist. Now, the lesson that I try to draw from the discussion of Thoreau um, is uh, to see the justification of legal disobedience in slightly different terms than the Rawlsian or the Kantian wants to see them. For Rawls, the justification for legal disobedience is, we might say, structural. That is, it's based on the current character of the basic structure of society, its fundamental legal, political, and economic institutions. Uh, if injustice within the basic structure is limited, Rawls seems to say, then disobedience is either impermissible altogether or must be civil, that is, aimed at a repair of the basic structure. Uh, if the injustice in the basic structure is extensive enough, then we might say all bets are off. Um, Rawls' theory only applies to near-just uh, political societies, so the theory, as it were, runs out at that point. The contrast that I find in Thoreau is the claim that it's not just structural injustice, that is, injustice in the basic structure of society that can justify disobedience, but rather historical wrongs of various kinds that can justify disobedience. Even structurally just institutions can be, and indeed have been, wrongly imposed on people. 
such as the descendants of slaves and Native Americans. Um, so the claim here seems to me to be that history matters to justifications of disobedience, not just the current character of the basic structure of our society. So what I try to do here is contrast what I call internal or structural limits to uh, political authority, the kinds of limits uh, emphasized by Rawls and by contemporary Rawlsians and Kantians, um, and contrast those with what I call external or historical limits to political authority based on the wrongful subjection by states of persons or territories. Um, for Rawlsians, Kantians, uh, doing justice for people or making justice possible for people is what gives states their authority over them, over those people and over the territories on which they live. It's what gives states the moral right to exercise jurisdiction that I was talking about a moment ago. Mm -hmm. But justice um, in this tradition is purely about the present and the future, not about how states came to control the particular sets of people and the parts of the physical universe over which they claim authority. Uh, and given the rather dark and bloody histories of uh, most states' acquisitions of their territories and sets of subjects, um, and given the fact that claims about wrongful subjection and historical Ill illegitimacy are familiar uh, from our everyday actual political lives, uh, it seems at least initially odd to me to suppose that uh, current states' claims to moral rights over persons and territory uh, are in no way affected by uh, the moral character of their histories of acquisition of persons and persons as subjects and territories as their own. Excellent. Um, now that uh, th that contrast you were just drawing between um, your uh, reading of Thoreau and um, Rawls, and then uh, as you characterized it, Rawls slash Kantian. Um, uh, views uh, helps us to sort of then transition into um, uh, the, the the boundary issues that you're that you're most interested in, and so let's just pick up there. One of the the, the central foils and recurring foils uh, that you employ uh, in the book uh, is a, a view, or maybe it's a family of views called Kantian functionalism. Um, can you fill in a little bit about? Uh, you know, in, in a little bit more detail than than than, than what you've already done about what um, the functionalist view is, um, particularly addressing why you think it doesn't give us a good um, entry into the issues about um, boundaries that you're concerned with. Right. Um, the term functionalist isn't mine. Uh, I think Annie Stilts uh, used it to describe the contemporary Kantian position. The basic idea of functionalism is that states' authority derives from the state's successful performance of its morally required function. And in the hands of Kantians and Rawlsians, that morally required function is the doing of justice within a domain. Uh, as we'll all remember, I suspect, um, Rawls suggests that we all have a natural duty of justice, that is, a natural duty to comply with and support those just institutions that exist and that apply to us. So the, the 
sort of de jure authority of governments and states is on this view uh, explained in terms of the de facto reach of governmental institutions in the administration of justice. Um, the One of the examples that I trot out periodically uh, in the book to try to challenge this approach to questions about political authority um, is the example of the United States surreptitiously moving its border barriers. Uh, I'm inspired to use this example by Thoreau's worries about uh, uh, the Mexican War, but we could imagine um, a near just political society or even a perfectly just political society in terms of its structure, the basic structure of the society, its fundamental institutions, uh, that nonetheless behaved aggressively in the following way. It moved its border barriers south, uh, claimed the newly enclosed territory as its own and the newly enclosed subjects as its subjects, uh, guaranteed them all of the same rights that our basic legal and political institutions guarantee to all American citizens, uh, and then proceeded as if nothing had happened. <laughs> now, my suspicion is that most people would think uh, that there's something wrong with this, and indeed most Rawlsians and Kantians uh, agree that there's something wrong with this. What it appears that they can't agree with uh, without changing their position in a fairly dramatic way is that the mere application of just institutions to individuals is sufficient to, um, to justify uh, claims of political authority over subjects and territories. Um, it seems to me that a natural response to examples of this sort is that the United States does not have legitimate authority over uh, the newly acquired, legitimately acquired citizens and territories, but it's not clear how the Kantian position can uh, recognize uh, this kind of limit to political authority, given its insistence that it's the mere de facto reach of just political institutions. What's unclear to me is uh, how Rawlsians or Kantians can consistently acknowledge that wrongful subjection uh, of the sort that seems to be at issue in the uh, example, the Mexico example that I've just cited, uh, how they can explain that this in any way limits the political authority of states over persons and territories. Uh, I take it the natural response uh, is that the newly enclosed Mexican citizens uh, and the newly enclosed Mexican territory are not subject to American jurisdiction in the same way that long-standing uh, American citizens and territories are subject to it, but it's not clear how the Rawlsian or the Kantian can uh, maintain that given the claim that it is the de facto reach of just institutions that determines the scope or the extent of political authority. Um, so one of the things I do um, in the chapter uh, in which I discuss this boundary problem uh, is look at the other possible resources available to contemporary Kantians to address this problem. So I look at uh, the theory theories of say, Scott Shapiro and Tom Cristiano, the theories of democratic authority, um, uh, 
in which they essentially claim that it is uh, arrogant or dictatorial uh, for people to uh, refuse to do their part um, within uh, fair cooperative schemes. Uh, my suggestion there is that even fair terms of cooperation, even just political institutions, don't appear to be mandatory to people who are wrongfully subjected to uh, the dominion of those institutions. Uh, I also look at some claims by Dave Estland uh, concerning political authority as the doing of an urgent task, and my response is uh, similar in that case. Um, it looks to me as if existing states with de jure authority over their territory, their claimed territories and subjects, is the starting point of Kantian theory. It's a presumption of Kantian theory uh, that's not open to question. The real question for Kantians and Rawlsians is what political institutions must look like in order to be just, in order for that political authority to be maintained. This seems to me to make such theories blind to the significance of the moral, uh, the historical dimension of political life, which I take to be an important moral dimension. Um, I should emphasize, I suppose, that while a lot of the book is critical of Rawlsian political philosophy, I mean, in fact, I'm in fact an admirer of Rawlsian <laughs> political philosophy. Um, I think that most of what Rawls has to say about the idea of justice uh, is eminently plausible. Um, what I think uh, what I think is wrong with Rawlsian political philosophy is that it uh, attempts to extend uh, those ideas about justice uh, to yield a theory of political authority over persons and territories. And it seems to me that uh, those two dimensions of political philosophy uh, need to be carefully separated and require a separate treatment. Um, I've emphasized in other work that I've done a distinction between what I call justification and legitimacy, which I take to be independent evaluative uh, dimensions in political philosophy. I think states can be evaluated uh, in terms of their justifying virtues, which is what I think Rawlsian political philosophy is most relevant to, and they can be evaluated in terms of the legitimacy um, of their claims to authority over persons and territories. And it's on that latter question that I think um, Rawlsians and Kantians overreach. Excellent. Um, so let's turn to then the, um, uh, the specifically uh, the issues about territorial rights by states. So right. uh, you consider um, a trio of, 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 of popular views in the literature um, that stand in contrast to, uh, to your own view, which is a kind of um, Lockean um, individualist voluntarist view, um, the, the the three foils are again the the, uh, the functionalist view, and then there's uh, a nationalist view with respect to states and and their rights to territory, and then um, a, a voluntarist view that has got a kind of collective or majoritarian aspect. Um, can you run us through, uh, again, um, particularly, I suppose, the newcomers, the, um, 
the nationalist view and the majoritarian voluntarist views. Um, can you run us through uh, th- these different views about territorial rights? Right. Um, so all of these theories obviously have accounts of how it is that states can acquire legitimate authority over persons. So here in this chapter, in the, at the start of the second part of the book, uh, what I'm trying to do is look at the the extensions of those theories to cover the idea of authority uh, to control particular territories. So um, on the functionalist view, as I've just said, the thought is that controlling territory is necessary for states to perform the morally imperative tasks that states perform. And the functionalist view, as I understand it, could be either the kind of Kantian view that I've discussed in the previous two chapters, uh, or it could be a consequentialist view of some sort, according to which the morally mandatory function of the state um, is uh, producing happiness or um, preference satisfaction or um, whatever you might identify as the consequential end. Um, so there, as a just um, to be perfectly clear, the idea is that in the same way that controlling persons is necessary for states to do justice or to produce happiness, uh, controlling territories is necessary as well. Um, the two newcomer theories that I consider there are the majoritarian or plebiscitary voluntarist view that uh, is defended by uh, Kit Wellman and Andy Altman in their book, uh, whose title is something about a liberal theory of international justice, I think. I've forgotten the precise uh, title. Um, and according to that kind of voluntarist view, uh, the the states controlling a particular territory is necessary uh, for us to respect uh, a group's choice to be a self-determining group. So it's the value of political choice, as it were, uh, which is supposed to account both for uh, the authority of groups over individuals, the fact that they've chosen to form self-determining groups, and to account for the uh, rights of states to control uh, the territories on which those groups live. Um, the nationalist position is slightly harder to summarize succinctly. Um, nations, of course, are, I mean, the concept of a nation is somewhat controversial, and different nationalists give slightly different accounts of what that amounts to, but we all have, I guess, a rough and ready idea of what a nation is. And the idea here is that nations are frequently attached to particular territories, their homelands, say, that nations themselves are morally valuable and that membership in a nation is something morally valuable that ought to be preserved. Um, The associative ties between members of a nation depend on their having control over the territory in which they live. The preservation of their national identities um, is uh, is importantly tied to their control over particular territories. And so the idea is that the value of nationhood, as it were, extends to the importance of to, to show the rights that nations have to control particular territories. I actually do sort of contrast these three views as well as my own sort of Lockean individualist view, the view that I prefer and defend uh, later in the book, uh, to the 
cosmopolitan view, perhaps most familiar from the work of uh, Thomas Poga. Um, and while cosmopolitans like Poga seem um, seldom to challenge the uh, accounts that these theories give of the jurisdictional rights of states, that is, their rights to control particular districted sets of persons, cosmopolitans tend to be very critical of these theories' claims with regard to states' robust territorial rights. Uh, a familiar feature of views like Poga's is that states have no strong rights to control their borders, that is, to prevent unwanted immigration, that they have no strong rights to control the resources that happen to be located within uh, their territorial boundaries. So the cosmopolitan position essentially denies what the other theories I'm considering here affirm, namely that there can be a moral justification for states to exercise robust control over their borders, robust control over resources. Uh, territorial rights that I suggest in the book are more property-like and less jurisdictional in nature. Right, right. Um, can you run us through then um, how your um, individualist Lockean uh, position runs, um, particularly with um, respect to um, some of the issues you discuss a little bit later in the book as you develop your positive view um, including rights of supersession and, and resource rights. Right. Um, so the problem of rights supersession is one that uh, I emphasize in my criticism of all of the sort of rival views of territorial rights. It seems to me that um, I mean, the standard position in almost all of these uh, theories uh, is uh, that we need some way of explaining why um, the uh, unjust histories of states uh, don't call for rectification rather than for the maintenance of states' current claims to control over territories. That is, almost all actual states have established their control over particular territories and sets of persons uh, by aggressive conquest. It's certainly true in the United States that uh, uh, much of the United States was acquired uh, through aggressive conquest. Um, and the question is why the older territorial rights of uh, individuals who lived on the land and seem to have the same kind of relation to the land that we currently have now don't persist in the face of these wrongful conquests and call for rectification of those wrongs, uh, why we think it is that states have sort of undiminished or robust uh, rights of territorial control over territories that they've come by in these uh, illegitimate ways. The supersession thesis uh, essentially says that uh, the older rights of prior residents, uh, prior groups, uh, fade away with the passage of time uh, to be replaced by uh, the rights of those who have occupied uh, the territories that were formerly occupied by those groups. Uh, that, I mean, that always has struck me as a suspicious move, yeah. the idea yeah. that uh, uh, 
uh, that we can simply ignore historical wrongs because they've faded away. And, yeah, like the uh, photographs it, or something, right? <laughs> that's right. Um, I mean, sometimes it's compared to uh, in the supersession thesis in Waldron, for instance, who's the most uh, uh, the most prominent defender of this view and the one who actually uh, uh, suggested the language of supersession to discuss these problems in. Um, you know, super, he can he compares this doctrine of the fading of territorial rights to legal doctrines uh, of acquisitive uh, prescription, like doctrines governing adverse possession in the law. Uh, what makes the move look somewhat suspicious is that while we can understand good reasons why there might be legal doctrines like adverse possession, um, good administrative reasons, as it were, where uh, we lose uh, the kind of evidence uh, of uh, wrongful acquisition that might be necessary to make a case in a court of law. Um, it's seems considerably less plausible than when, that when we're talking about the moral rights of states to control over territory, that the same kinds of administrative arguments would be available. And so Waldron has to offer different arguments for the supersession thesis, which perhaps we'll uh, get to later. You asked me, though, to compare the, the three views that I criticize at the beginning of the third of the second part of the mm -hmm. book, the nationalist and functionalist and majoritarian voluntarist view with the view that I defend, which is, as you have rightly said, an individualist voluntarist view. Uh, so I also think like the majoritarian voluntarists, the territorial rights um, turn importantly on the value of choice, political choice in in the case of an individual voluntarist position like Locke's, uh, though, uh, political obligation, the state's authority over persons is derived from the actual personal consent of those individuals who are subject to state authority. Uh, and the state's authority of land, over land uh, derives from the submission of land to which individuals have prior property or occupancy rights to the state's jurisdiction. Uh, no actual states in the world come even close to meeting this model. Um, actual states all include many people who are not sort of willing, consenting members of their of the political societies, um, and states make territorial claims to parts of the world that uh, have in no way been freely submitted to uh, the state. And for defending the Lockean theory. Um, is not that it can provide us with a non-revisionist account of the actual moral rights that states have to control persons and territories. What I take to be compelling about the Lockean theory is the ideal theory that it uh, defends. Um, it captures uh, straightforwardly, I think, the intuition that many of us possess, uh, that many of us subscribe to, that uh, claims to territorial rights are most compelling uh, where the territories in question are lived on and used by willing subjects of the states, uh, where we are most skeptical, I believe, about uh, states' claims to territorial rights are either where the persons living on those territories have been forcibly subjected 
or where the territories are claimed without any actual use by willing members of the of the political community. Um, what I think this kind of ideal theory of territorial rights preserves, importantly, is the particularity of territorial claims. Mm. That is, uh, we can understand in a straightforward way why the particular territories that states claim uh, are the ones over which they have authority, because those territories are the ones on which the willing members of the community live and labor. Um, it also, this theory also eliminates the need for uh, a supersession thesis. Uh, mm-hmm. On the Lockean uh, ideal theory, uh, wrongs that states have done in acquiring uh, authority over individuals and territories simply require rectification. Uh, the uh, theory is not committed to a pro- uh, there being a problem with a potential problem with trapped minorities because uh, unwilling members of uh, unwilling persons who are sort of within the territories claimed by states are simply not subject to legitimate state coercion in the lands uh, on which they live and labor are not subject to the territorial uh, jurisdiction of the state. Um, so I think the ideal theory captures certain important intuitions that we have about territorial rights. It identifies a target of fully rightful, legitimate territorial claims by states. It identifies the most serious kinds of wrongs that states can do in uh, their quests to acquire authority over persons and territories than what non-ideal theory uh, will have to do for us is identify the best ways to rectify those kinds of wrongs. I mean, non-ideal theory here won't be neat. Non-ideal theory is not neat for any kind of political philosophy, not just Lockean political philosophy. But I don't think the sloppiness of non-ideal theory is a particular problem for the view. Right. Um, can you tell us a, a little bit about the um, – particularly about the resource rights? I found that um, some of the discussion of um, – um, the sort of history of thinking about um, how deep into the earth resources can go and how <laughs> how far into the sky um, a, uh, a state's uh, claim to um, jurisdiction can go. Uh, very interesting. Right. Um, I distinguish in the discussion of resource rights. Um, I, I treat I treat resource uh, claims by states as a kind of property-like claim that states make. Um, The kinds of claims that states actually make and the kinds of claims that are enforceable under international law are really fairly extraordinary in certain (laughs) ways. Uh, I distinguish between the sort of core claims, as I call them, that states make, which are the claims to a certain bounded area of uh, surface land and water and the resources on uh, that land. Um, I contrast those with what we might call the extended territorial uh, claims that states make, claims to the air above the state, to the subsurface below the state, um, to uh, water such as coastal waters around the state, um, and I look a little bit at the 
at some of the historical debate. It's a very brief discussion of the historical debates uh, between uh, Hugo Grotius and Selden and Pufendorf uh, concerning the ownership of the sea and the worries that they had about the fact that the sea constantly changes its constitution. Mm -hmm. Uh, The same kind of thing that we could say about the air and the subsurface as we now understand the subsurface to work. But the, the, the claims that states are entitled to under international law in these areas are um, sort of the air up to wherever we take outer space, outer space to begin, which uh, is not settled in international law. Uh, the it seems hard to settle as a philosophical matter. It, would just, it seems right. like a, it seems like a, a, not a well-formed question, actually. <laughs> in a way, I think that's in a way I think that's correct. Uh, in fact, the the position I argue for is that uh, the rights that states should be understood to have in the extended domain in air, subsurface, and sea. Um, look to be rights that can only be justified if the um, exercise of those rights is necessary for a state's legitimate activities on their core claims uh, to bounded land. So what I suggest is that legitimate activities uh, that we can imagine might be traffic control uh, in the air or on the sea, uh, border control, uh, the the guarding of the border and the administration of state policies with regard to uh, what passes over the border uh, and national defense. Uh, If we understand the state's legitimate extended claims in that way, uh, most states claim uh, territories that extend far beyond what could be justified in those terms. Uh, indeed, it's not even clear uh, how we could understand a state's claims to the deep subsurface of the earth. Um, I also think that claims to uh, resources on the ocean floor, claims to exclusive economic zones extending far off the coast, uh, and so on, are simply indefensible. Um, and that none of the, in fact, None of the uh, familiar uh, theories of territorial rights, the ones that I've summarized and criticized earlier in the book, can actually give an account of, uh, of how states' uh, territorial claims are sufficiently robust to extend to those kinds of things. Great. Um, can we uh, – I wanted to make sure that we get into um... – uh, the issue that I'm sure a lot of uh, people who might just run across the book on a shelf in a bookstore, if, if, if there are such things any longer, by the way, um, <laughs> <laughs> you say boundaries of authority. I, I'm wondering if the casual reader might not look at that book and think it's about immigration. Right. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the right to exclude? Right. So I take the um, the standard views uh, in the existing philosophical literature on immigration to be two, roughly. Um, one constitutes, uh, one view amounts to a defense of discretionary rights of self-determination in uh, matters of immigration, uh, defended in a variety of ways. Um, you know, Kit Wellman, for instance, uh, defends such discretionary rights uh, in terms of the associational rights, the associational freedom of uh, self-governing polities. Uh, David Miller 
defends discretionary self-determination in these matters uh, uh, in terms of what's necessary for cultural preservation uh, within uh, national groups. That's on one side of the debate. Uh, on the other side of the debate um, uh, is the open borders position that's most familiar from the work of Joe Karens, um, uh, which attacks the idea that states have uh, discretionary rights of self-determination in immigration matters. Um, most of the open borders arguments rest on uh, roughly uh, Rawlsian-looking arguments. Rawls himself, of, of course, did not extend uh, his arguments uh, uh, to justify claims that borders ought to be open or at least very permeable. Um, but the uh, idea of nationality as a morally arbitrary feature of our lives that we're simply dropped into the world as members of this nation or that and that which nation we happen to be dropped into determines in dramatic ways our life prospects uh, is the sort of underlying basis for a lot of open border arguments mm -hmm. that it's uh, simply not fair that we be restricted in that way by um, by our social starting point, which is arbitrary from the moral point of view. Um, the, I, I find that the open borders arguments are prim primarily persuasive uh, only because they presume without argument um, that there are not any natural rights to control territories that um, individuals can possess and that individuals can transfer to uh, their political groups. Um, and of course, it's natural rights to control, uh, to control property and subsequently state rights to control national territory that are the guiding idea in the Lockean position that I defend. Um, so I try to defend a kind of intermediate position uh, between these two views, one that holds that in a legitimate society, a legitimate lock, a, a society that's legitimate by Lockean terms, that um, there are in fact um, reasonable, reasonable discretionary rights of exclusion based on the fact that uh, the individuals uh, have property claims and states have property-like claims to the territories in question, though there are all sorts of limits to this discretionary right based on uh, duties to assist the unfortunate. Um, so the position that I end up defending in the chapter is, I'd say, something like an intermediate view between the two dominant views that are defended in the literature today. Fantastic. Um... You've been um, very generous with your time. Um, so one last question. Um, what will your next project look like? Well, I've been, I've been working on a couple of papers on colonialism. Uh, there has been a, a sort of emerging literature on what's wrong with colonialism. Um, and I'm interested in talking about colonialism uh, in light of some of the arguments that I actually make in this book, I mean, one of the examples I use in the book um, concerns uh, the requirements on hunter-gatherer groups uh, who utilize large territories for their lifestyles, the requirements on them to downsize uh, their holdings, their claims in the face of uh, 
new people, new generations of people that need access to territories. So uh, I think some of the some of the literature on colonialism can be um, uh, can be illuminated by appeal to those kinds of arguments, and that's what I'm working on now. Whether that will amount to anything of interest remains to be seen. <laughs> I'm sure it will. Uh... Um, and, uh, um, it's been wonderful, uh, talking to you about, uh, about your new book, Boundaries of Authority. Thank you for your time today, John. Well, thank you very much, Bob, for the opportunity to talk about this. And thank you listeners, uh, for joining us on New Books in Philosophy. Again, the book is titled Boundaries of Authority. Uh, the author is, uh, A. John Simmons. Um, the book is published by Oxford uh, University Press. Uh, I encourage everyone to go out and, and, and check it out. Bye for now. <laughs>